For God to show me that I can have peace in a storm is much more powerful to me than a gold medal that's going to sit in my sock drawer. (laughs) Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today's guests both know what it's like to fight to become the best they can be, despite challenges from their early years. Three-time world champion athlete Lolo Jones and four-time heavyweight boxing champion Evander Holyfield. First up, Lolo Jones is one of only 10 athletes in history to compete in both the Summer and Winter Olympic Games. Lolo's success as a hurdler and later as a bobsledder speaks to the incredible fortitude she's honed as an endurance athlete, but also as a child who grew up in a home where her father was frequently incarcerated. Even as a young kid, Lolo was determined to succeed, and today she tells us her incredible faith fueled her through her triumphs, as well as the devastating moment she thought God was using her to show His glory, only to watch her quest for a gold medal dissolve before her very eyes. I'm Lolo Jones, summer and winter Olympic athlete, three-time world champion. I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. I have five siblings total, so there's I have three brothers and a sister, and it was a rough childhood. My dad was in and out of prison growing up. And at one point, my mom lost her house. So we were homeless. One day she gave each one of her kids a blanket, put us in the car and just started driving. And she said she didn't know where she was going. She didn't know where she was heading. And she ended up driving to the church we attended every weekend, uh, the Salvation Army. Um, And so we actually lived in a church while we were homeless until my mom could get her feet back off the ground. The good thing about my parents, and especially my dad, even though he he was in and out of prison, he was a believer. And I think having him as an example in my life is, you know, even though we can believe in Christ and love Christ, we can still struggle with sin. And so he struggled, you know, he struggled with alcoholism. He struggled with just different aspects but at the same time, with all the demons and, and fears that he was facing, he still raised me to be a believer and, and took me to church every weekend. And so I just really see God's grace in that whole situation. I've messed up at the Olympics and it's cost me an Olympic gold. And how can you ever recover from that? And I look at my dad and see all the mistakes he's made and still yet still yet good came from it. And I I can really see the Bible verse that says all things work together for his good and glory. I definitely think that my hardships were molding me for the life that I would have to go through later. I mean, there were times where I was embarrassed if there was a school dance and I knew my mom didn't have enough money to buy me a dress, so I just wouldn't go to the school dance. And then some other parents found out and offered to get me a secondhand dress or you know my first pair of running shoes were donated from somebody's car like they they had an extra pair of running shoes in the trunk of their car so I my first pair of running shoes were you know hand-me-downs and so I think that that's always what's kept me just going and even when you're a runner sometimes you know your hardest workouts and it's breaking you down it's you're you're like how am I going to get through this I mean your your body is failing on you. You feel all the pain accumulating in your legs. Your lungs are burning, but somehow you manage to get through. You manage to finish by just enough. And once you cross that finish line, you are so strong and you just come alive. And I think that that's 
what God was doing to me and my family in those moments by just allowing just enough is to really rely on Him and His provision. I started the Hurdles of Hope Foundation to help single moms and families that have incarcerated parents because that's the environment I grew up in. And I looked back and I thought about all the shoes that were donated to me, all of the Christmas presents and Thanksgiving meals that were provided to my family because we couldn't afford <laughs> food or groceries. You know, I started the foundation because it's such a hard thing for to talk about. It's such a hard thing for kids to go through. And the stat of if a kid has a parent that's incarcerated, it tremendously increases their chance that one point in their life they will as well be incarcerated. So I wanted to break that chain. I wanted to break that cycle. I found an outlet through sports and not necessarily wanting other kids, but just helping them to whatever outlet they need to have a stable environment while they go through that situation. I don't know how, specifically how I became a runner. I just know that we never had a car growing up. Like it would just, we'd have a car for a season and it would break down and then we wouldn't have a car. And so my main mode of transportation was walking to school. And I just found out that to get there quicker and to sleep in a little bit more, you could run. And then when my dad was actually out of prison, there would be moments where we would have to go to the grocery store and he would take me to the grocery store and we'd run to the grocery store He'd be carrying the grocery bags, and then I would be running next to him, and he would be walking me through, like, how to control my breathing and how to just keep running faster. And so for me, those—I mean, I don't have many childhood moments with my dad because he was in and out of prison, but those were some of them. You know, I remember one time our car broke down, and it was a very cold night in Iowa. Like, I think it was it was almost blizzard. And so he had me and I think my brother. And we don't have any other family to come pick us up. So we ran home. We, we ran home. It was either stay in this cold car or truck it up. And we, and we ran home. And little did I know that that was preparing me for my job later. Like my job as a bobsled athlete was to run in some of the coldest conditions possible. And who knew that, you know, me as a kid, the car breaking down, it's it's freezing cold. And I remember my dad telling me how to run so I could keep the body heat up. And that would all translate to, you know, me being a winter Olympic athlete. You know, just having to adapt to different environments and, you you know, all these little kind of nuggets that were my childhood that most people consider a rough childhood were actually little seeds that helped me throughout my career later on. And so I think that that encourages me and gives me faith nowadays when I go through trials and, and tribulations and is being able to look on those things. And, you know, it didn't make sense when I was a kid. It didn't make sense why we could never afford a, a working car or, you know, why all the other kids had their parents on school day. And, you know, my mom was working two jobs so she could never attend track meets. It, it never made sense at the time. But uh, years later, a lot of the things came together that I know were the my childhood strengthened me for a time to stand on the world stage and compete. I needed something stable. So I gravitated towards sports. I played basketball, ran track, you know, any kind of 
extracurricular sports, <laughs> I was there. I was always staying after school, just wanting to just be active. And that's how I got involved in sports. I got involved with track and field or the hurdles because the coach was, I was doing everything in track and field, every event, long jump, the mile, high jump, uh, four by four, everything. And then the coach approached me one day and she said they needed a hurdler. And she said, all the other girls are afraid that they'll fall. <laughs> and I was like, I'll do it. I don't care. You know, uh, she was, she said they were afraid that they were, they were going to fall and they were going to get scars, uh, on their legs. And I, I think it's, Interesting because even in life, sometimes people could have success, but that success is impeded because they're afraid they're going to fail. They're, they're going to get hurt. And for me, I used it as motivation. I actually embraced it and I kept running the hurdles and I kept winning. I didn't lose a, a race that whole season. And so I was, um, I knew at that moment that I was on the right track, literally within a track. <laughs> I knew that if I kept running uh, on the pace I was, I could get a scholarship and I could be one of the first ones in my family to go to college, graduate, and break the cycle of poverty. I decided to go to LSU because at the time it was a powerhouse in track and field. It had won 13 national titles. And my original goals with LSU were obviously to be successful, but I was just thrilled to have a scholarship, and I was determined to keep that scholarship. Nothing's guaranteed when you're an athlete. And I knew that if my scholarship was reduced in any way, I had no way to uh, afford to go to college. So I just worked so diligently every day so that I would be able to keep my scholarship and represent LSU in the best way that I guess focusing on that actually helped easily transition me into oh my gosh, I could maybe possibly be an Olympic athlete. I had a very successful college career. I was 11-time All-American. I had won an NCAA title. So I was one of the top collegiate hurdlers. Uh, I went to my first Olympic trials, and that's where my world was completely shaken up. I mean, I, I was competing now against the pros. And I didn't even make the final. I wasn't even the top eight in the U.S. I mean, you talk about you go from the top in college and then just being squashed like a bug. That's essentially what happened. So I remember my first year, I was getting fifth through seventh in all of the professional races. Then my second year pro, I, I was getting third through fifth. And then I started getting top Three. And then the year of the 2008 Olympic trials, um, I went into the Olympic trials and not only did I win and made my first Olympic team, I was the fastest hurdler in the world. So I went from four years ago, coming out of college, not even being good enough to be in the finals at the Olympic trials to making my first Olympic team and being the best in the world. I go to my first games, and I mean, I stayed focused. I ran the first two rounds. I kept getting faster. The semifinals, I ran the fastest time ever in my life. And so I head into the finals. The whole world is watching, and people are saying, she's running so fast, she could break the Olympic record. She's a shoo-in to win this medal. I zoned it all out. I wanted to focus on being in the moment. And I remember the race sets off, Hurdle three, four, and five, I'm crushing it. I knew I was in the lead. And then out of nowhere, I hit the ninth hurdle. 
And in that moment, I knew I had lost the Olympic gold medal, but I figured I could still come away and squeak uh, a bronze out or a silver. And, and then I cross the finish line and I look up at the scoreboard and I see my name and it says seventh. And I was just absolutely devastated. And so I collapsed to the track and I just remember God whispering to me, but you're here, but you're here. Four years ago, you were crying because you were sitting at home watching the Olympics on TV and now you're here. And after that moment, I went back to the Olympic Village and I went into my dorm room and I did praise and worship. And I was so grateful, my heart flooded with joy and it just taught me so many different things, you know, how we can continue to have promotions and then the moment we get promoted, then if we're already looking to our next promotion and not being grateful for the, the new level God has given us. And then it also taught me how to praise in the midst of my heartbreak and that God could give me peace, joy, and clarity to hold me through those moments. So it was just an incredibly, that night after I lost the Olympic gold was my most peaceful night. You know, that was the hardest, the hardest hurtful race in my life. But that night, I had so much peace, you know, like looking back, if I go through hardships and I know, okay, this really, really hurt me. This is frustrating. I wanted this so bad and it was ripped away. Uh, instead of be like, how could you, God? It's like, oh, you know what, God? Give me your peace. Fill me up. Give me your joy right now in this moment because I'm hurting and I need you to help me through this difficult time. The next Olympics, which were the London Olympics, I had spine surgery the year before, um, which almost ended my career. And I was able to come back from that, but I was running terribly. I was losing every race. And that's when, you know, everybody's like, there's no way she'll make this Olympic team at all. <laughs> and I'm like, but God, <laughs> looking back on that, I like having that moment because it knows that even when I do have my doubts and fears and I let them overtake me, that God can still use me. And that's exactly what he did because I should not have made that team. And when I made that team, so many people were encouraged because I had the lowest odds to make that team. I mean, I think it's funny because sometimes we fight as Christians or our humans, we fight being in weak spots. We all, we want, we want to be powerful. We want to be the top position, but sometimes God can use us more when we're injured, when we're, we're not the best candidate, when we're the weaker candidate, when we don't have all of our things together. And then people can see a true transformation. They can see really how God was able to come through it. And so I head off to the London Olympics and I get through the rounds and I'm in the final. I'm the last person that makes the final and I ran a great race. So when I crossed the line and I looked up at that scoreboard and I saw my name at fourth, one spot shy of a medal, it was a different kind of pain. This time I got bitter. This time I was like, what? I mean, sometimes I think as Christians, we try to predict how God's gonna use us. And when he doesn't use us in that manner, we become hurt. For a month after, I just shut down. I went back to my house and I did not leave my house. I 
pretty much just watch TV. <laughs> and then that's when I felt like I wanted to be an athlete, but I just didn't know how. And so that's when um, I remembered having, or who hasn't seen this movie, Cool Runnings? I mean, I grew up on this movie. It's a, it's a classic, I guess, because I was watching so much TV. And then that's when I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to bobsled. I'm, there's no one's going to expect me or put any pressure on me to make this Olympic team because it's not my sport. But I wanted to go out there and just see if I enjoyed being an athlete again. And that's what led me to be on the path to make my third Olympic team. I love Jesus Calling. Uh, it's a great podcast. It's, it's a great app. And why I like Jesus Calling is because it's got me through some of my hardest seasons in life where I started to lose faith. And one thing I've never lost faith on in God is He is an amazing provider. So I'm reading July 14th. Keep walking with me along the path I have chosen for you. Your desire to live close to me is a delight to my heart. I could instantly grant you the spiritual riches you desire, but that is not my way for you. Together, we will forge a pathway up the high mountain. The journey is arduous at times, and you are weak. Someday, you will dance light-footed on the high peaks. But for now, your walk is often plodding and heavy. All I require of you is to take the next step clinging to my hand for strength and direction. Though the path is difficult and the scenery dull at the moment, there are sparkling surprises just around the bend. Stay on the path I have selected for you. It is truly the path of life. I guess I'd say that if being a runner, an Olympian has taught me anything. Of all the races I've competed in, a lot of the races I've lost have actually meant more to me than some of my victories because it showed me what I had to do to persevere, to press on, to not give up, and what I fought to just even cross the finish line. So the Jesus Calling app says to focus on step by step. And there's so many times in life in practice where I'm so tired, all I can do is think about the next step. And I just tried to apply that to life. You know, I'm having a bad day. I'm overwhelmed. I don't feel like I'll ever make another Olympic team. People call me washed up, and I just focus on the step. To learn more about how you can help others with incarcerated loved ones through the Hurdles of Hope Foundation, go to lolojonesusa.com. Stay tuned to hear from world champion boxer Evander Holyfield after a brief message about a way you can connect with other Jesus Calling readers each week in prayer. During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for a special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com. Did you know that Sarah Young, the author of Jesus Calling, prays for her readers each day? In that spirit, we want to extend the Jesus Calling prayer community out to you in a more personal way. 
Each Tuesday morning, you can dial into the Jesus Calling Weekly Prayer Call, where the team from Jesus Calling and special guests will minister to us during a 10-minute call to reflect on that day's passage from Jesus Calling, read scripture references, and pray together for each other and our world. Prayer call times are 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Central, 6 a.m. Mountain, and 5 a.m. Pacific, and are for U.S. only. For more information on the Jesus Calling weekly prayer call or to submit prayer requests, please visit jesuscalling.com slash prayer dash call. Again, to join us in this community of prayer every Tuesday morning, please visit jesuscalling.com slash prayer dash call. Our next guest is four-time heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Evander Holyfield. When Evander was only eight years old, a mentor from Atlanta's Boys Clubs of America saw raw boxing talent in a kid from Alabama who excelled at most sports he tried. Evander's natural athleticism made it hard to narrow down which sport he should pursue. So with encouragement from his mother to find one thing and stick to it, Evander began boxing. His determination to become the best in the world, mixed with his desire to make his mother happy, motivated him to fight to win, even after retirement age. He couldn't be satisfied with just tying the record for all-time most championships. He wanted to break it. But he never forgot the words of his mother, who reminded him not to worry about the things he didn't have, but to be thankful for the things he did. I'm Evander Holyfield. On October 19, 1962, four-time heavyweight champion of the world, undisputed cruiserweight champion of the world, I'm one of the best fighters in the world. I was born in Alabama, and so... Um, we moved to Atlanta from Alabama when I was four years old. And uh, pretty much everything started in Atlanta. And I had a good boys club relationship. I started boys club at when I, when I was six years old. And it seemed like my life started changing at, at the boys club. As a kid, I was told that I was going to be great. I'm telling you, you know, I practiced all my life as a kid. People looked at me and people always said great things. Oh, this kid here. And I, and I got in more trouble than everybody as a kid. I, I just got, got all these whoopings. And, but, you know, I, I always believe in Christ. But I guess the most important thing, I wanted to help my mom. I, I love my mom. And, you know, with, with a capital L, it was just like, you know, I, I love my mom. And, and, and I wanted things to work. And... And I wanted to do everything that was necessary, I thought, could make her happy. And, and making her happy was for me to go to church and do the right thing. And so I became who I am because I really wanted to please my mama. My mom was so disappointed so much her whole life. And I, I wanted to be that joy. I wanted to be the best. I, I wanted to be the best in something. As a kid, I was very athletic. I, I did a lot of things well. And my mama started telling me, she said, son, you ain't got enough time to be great in everything. You got to find one thing and stick to it. Everything came down to football and, and boxing. Of course, I like football better because I like people. It's easy to do it because the fact that you, you, you're competing with somebody. But in boxing, you, you just got, when you practice, you ain't doing nothing competing by yourself. And so I, I, I wanted to play football more so than I wanted to box. But I got in box because of the fact that the matter, I lied to the coach. 
because uh, he told me I had to be on the boxing team. So I told him I want to be on the boxing team where I can hit the speed bag. So once I hit the speed bag, he said I could be the heavyweight champ of the world. He said, do you know you could be like Muhammad Ali? I said, I'm only eight years old. He said, you won't always be eight. And I believe him because next week I was going to be nine. So he asked me, what do you think being like Muhammad Ali? And I looked at him and I said, well, I got to ask my mama. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you got a good mom. And so he said, then you go home and ask that good mom to see what that good mom has to say. So I went and asked my mom. I said, mom, this white man at the boys club said I could be like Muhammad Ali. My mom said, what? I said, mama, he said I could be like Muhammad Ali. So my mom said, do you know what they're going to do to you? And I'm like, no, they're going to hit you. I started laughing because I get hit all the time. <laughs> I get all these whipping. I get hit all the time. So my mom said, well, you can't hit them back because I couldn't hit my brothers and sisters back. And so that's how I started. Somebody saying I could be great like Muhammad Ali. But, you know, it was a secret that I, I wasn't going to tell nobody because I knew people going to say, you ain't going to be nothing. At nine years old, I had my first bout. I won. I brought a trophy home. And my mama put that on the, on the, on the thing on the top. Everybody that came in, they asked, Miss Holyfield, who is the fighter? She said, I live one right there. And everybody said, he lived. And, but my mama said, but he can show fight. Oh, I, I found a way that I can make my mom happy. First time my mother went to see me fight was in Olympic trial. And, and I had to beg her to go. She didn't want to go. I said, come on, Mom, you got to go. And so she came, and I lost. I got to fight the guy again. So she didn't come to the fight, and I beat it. So she didn't come to the first, the first time I fought. She didn't come. And the second time I fought, she didn't come. The third fight, she didn't come. I said, Mom, when you going to come to the fight? Did I come to the fight? She comes to the fight. I get disqualified. So my mama started telling me, she said, son, I don't think I'm good luck for you. I said, mom, we can't believe that way. And so, of course, I turned pro. So my mama don't come to none of the pro, the pro bouts. So all of a sudden, when it comes to heavyweight, the heavyweight fight, I said, mom, I said, do you remember when that man told me, when that man told me I could be the heavyweight champion of the world, I was eight years old. I said, Mama, it's been 20 years. So I'll be 28. And so I told my mama, you got to come. So my mama said, she decides she'll come. So she come up uh, the night before the fight. So in the morning, I wake up and my phone rang. And it's my mom. She said, son, can I come up and see you? I said, what's wrong, mama? She said, I, I got to talk to you about something. I said, what? She said, son, do you not know that? She said, I can't stand to see nobody hit you. She said, son, have anybody ever hit you in front of me? I said, no. She said, see, 
and the fights, I can't stand for nobody. Son, it make me want to come and help you. And she said, son, do you mind if I just stay in the room and just pray for you? I said, no problem. She said, she's, but don't you have an after party after thing? I said, well, yeah. She said, well, I'm going to pray for you, but say the first dance with me. I said, okay. I knocked the guy out in the third round, and my mama comes to the after party, and she go, and everybody said, oh, man, yo, man, your mama can dance. So she ain't go no more fights. She only watched the fight on TV and have a heart attack even watching the TV. She had a hard time seeing me get hit. Once I, I became the heavyweight champion of the world, it got harder. But I didn't just fought just to be the heavyweight champion. I wanted to be the best. And so the first person I lost against this guy over there named Reddick Bo. And so my mom, she didn't want me to fight no more after I lost. Because my mom would say, son, you made a lot of money, but it wasn't the money. I wanted to be the very best. And so I fought him again and I beat him. I become the two-time heavyweight champ of the world. And, and all of a sudden, I lose against a guy named Michael Bohr. And then I go back and I realize I can't quit now. I lost. You got to end up with a win. So I, I go in and, and so it took all this while, so I had to fight Mike Tyson. Finally, get an opportunity to fight Mike Tyson in 1996. I win three-time heavyweight champion of the world, just like Muhammad Ali. My job was to be the undisputed three-time heavyweight champion of the world and leave it alone. And, and, but what happened? I ended up fighting a, a Lennox Lewis. And they called it a draw one time. And the, and the second time, they gave it to him because they knew that I was going to retire. But because I lost in Lennox Lewis, I'm not retired. I'm going to fight again. I fought a guy, John Ruiz, and I become the only four-time heavyweight champion of the world. Records are meant to be broken. I'm telling you, you know, and, and I find that even having setbacks, setback kind of pays a way to show you how good God is. He gives you another opportunity. I'm just going, you know, if, yeah, think about, if I never lost nothing, I'd be talking about, I mean, I was great. I would, now, every time things don't work, make you call on, on Jesus Christ. So I realized that, I said, well, man, you know what? Every time you mess up, you gotta have somebody who willing to give you another opportunity. And you know, I, I'm just honored to give God praise for what he's given me to be that light vessel to tell people, you got to dream big. And I became who I am because my mom was constantly telling me be thankful for what you have yourself. Stop worrying about things that you don't have. Be thankful for what you have. To keep up with what Evander Holyfield is doing in his life after boxing, please visit evanderholyfield.com. If you'd like to hear more stories about the athletes who persevere through their faith, check out our interview with NASCAR driver Michael McDowell. Next time on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we talk with author and speaker Beth McCord. 
Beth is passionate about helping others find meaningful relationships and a life of deep purpose using a tool called the Enneagram, a system of personality typing that describes the different ways people view the world and manage their emotions. Beth describes how understanding her own personality helped her relationship with her husband, Jeff, early in their marriage. And this gave me the clarity to tell Jeff more about myself in ways that I couldn't have described on my own. And it really led to so much more clarity between us, understanding, empathy, mercy, and grace. And it really allowed our relationship to blossom. Now, it took years for us to really understand ourselves and our personality types. And so it's a forever growing process, but it really helped to accelerate our growth and transformation toward each other. Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories. And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live. Find previously broadcast interviews on our YouTube channel on IGTV or on JesusCalling.com slash video.